This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is a science podcast for February 16, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, former Mythbuster Adam Savage chats with science's editor-in-chief Holden Thorpe about how to combat misinformation, plus a few myths Savage still wants to tackle. Next on the show, making blueberries without blue pigments. Researcher Rox Middleton joins me to talk about how specialized wax on the surface of blueberries actually give the berries their blue hue. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, Director of Custom Publishing, Erica Berg, talks with Professor Jim Wells about the latest advancements in organoid therapies for metabolic and digestive diseases. It may be surprising to you that for many working scientists today, Mythbusters was a foundational introduction to the scientific method. Or for others, an introduction into the joy of designing experiments to figure out how the world works. This week, Mythbuster Adam Savage spoke with science's editor-in-chief, Holden Thorpe, about engaging the public in the scientific process and, importantly, how to convey its self-correcting nature. They start out talking about Mythbuster's ability to inspire scientific careers. My son is about to defend his Ph.D. thesis in neuroscience at Columbia, and I think if I asked him, you know, are you a scientist more because of me or more because of the Mythbusters? He probably wouldn't want to answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> well, let him know that one day I'll call upon my army, okay? Okay, there you go. It has been a remarkable progression over the last 20 plus years of people saying, hey, you got me through high school chemistry to now saying I've sold three startups and Mythbusters got me interested in science at the very beginning. So for your fans, tell us what you've been up to since the show went off the air. We wrapped the show back in 2015, 2016 officially was the last airing of this last season. And since then, I've made a couple of television shows, Mythbusters Jr. with eight amazing young colleagues and Savage Builds. We made 10 episodes of all the things I've ever wanted to build up till that point including putting laser tag on some of Peter Jackson's World War I airplanes and enjoying real dogfights over New Zealand. And then when COVID hit, my YouTube channel had always been the kind of like the thing on the side while I was working on television. And when COVID hit, that relationship reversed and YouTube became the main thing that I was working on. And frankly, 
I'm happier now professionally, creatively than I have ever been in my life. And I am in this cave here in San Francisco building almost every single day. And it is totally dreamy. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right, let me ask you some more provocative things about what's going on and how we can learn from you. So you're probably following that research integrity and errors in science have kind of taken over the zeitgeist. They were always there for us. We were always processing you know, mistakes that were made in papers and figuring out how to correct the record. But now it's all over the news. The president of Stanford had to resign because he published some images that were wrong. A huge thing on superconductivity at uh, the University of Rochester, a whole bunch of stuff about behavioral economics. Then we had a plagiarism with the Harvard president. Now there's a huge thing in Dana-Farber. It's like, we're just living through this thing. And not everybody agreed with everything, all the myths that you either confirmed or busted over the years. So when when people disagreed with your conclusions, what did you do if you thought they were credible? Uh, We took them seriously. One of my favorite things that we did on the show, I think before the end of the first season, we were getting word that we had gotten some experimental methodology wrong. And we, we revisited the myth. There were several stories like chicken gun and rocket car that we tackled multiple times based on new data, new information, new ways of executing it. Discovery was never on board. They always had to be dragged to do the revisits. And to me, it was the most scientific thing we did. We're experimentalists. And so the result we have isn't a fact. It's the best story we currently have. And if a new, better story comes up, I'll tell you, and I have been paying attention to the the crisis in reproducibility that's been happening. And I'm a big proponent of open source publishing. I personally feel like I can lay a lot of the blame for the current crisis in science with late stage capitalism and the bizarre incentive models that lead people, the publish or perish pipeline the strained resources we've had for like the last 40 years in academia. Absolutely, it's unassailable that anything that's government funded should be open source immediately. I can't believe that's still a debate, but I really feel like that holds a lot of the blame for the crisis. Yeah, there are lots of us working on different solutions to that problem. Ours is we allow everybody who publishes with us, even if it's in a journal that has a paywall, to send the accepted version of the manuscript to any depository they want to. Now, it's taken decades to get to that point. Uh, and we've yeah. only gotten there recently, you know, and we definitely see good things come of that. But you said something profound that is very, very similar to what we see in science, that discovery didn't want to do the retests. We see the same thing with, if somebody complains about a paper, A lot of times the author will fight us on trying to work out if there's something wrong, but we get by far the worst behavior from the institutions who are sending us statements that say, you know, Stanford is very committed to research integrity and telling us it's going to take forever to do the investigation and burying us in in paperwork. And, you know, all we want to do is put a correction or retraction on the paper. We don't care about all that other stuff. We just want people to find the right answer. So so elaborate on that some more. You went to Discover. You said, hey, look, we screwed this up. 
What was well, her reaction? Look, we, we didn't say we screwed it up. We said, hey, there's an opportunity to tell a whole new narrative. And we've got footage we can use from the old narrative and get people involved. They want one result. We're giving them another. We're giving them another chance to yell at us at the television. And those the ratings for our revisit episodes did great. So while I say Discovery was a reluctant partner in doing the revisits, it wasn't like they fought us tooth and nail. Whenever we planted a flag and put our foot down and said, this is something we want to do, they were, in general, from the, almost the whole run, really great partners. Um, oh, yeah. The third time we wanted to do Rocket Car, we were like, hey, we want to do Rocket Car a third time, and this time we need another fifty or $60,000. And they were like, absolutely, that's great. So um, did you ever have to change whether a myth was confirmed or busted as a part of one of these redos? Absolutely. We came to different results lots of times. I think Running in the Rain is one we did three times and came up with three different results. <laughs> and what is the final in result on Running in the Rain? The final result is that running and walking will yield a difference in the amount of rain you receive. And it depends on wind direction and the speed in which you're running and the amount of time you are spending out in the rain. Because, of course, over a certain period of time, everyone gets the same amount of wet. But the fundamental difference is on the order of grams of water. Walking is better than running, but literally only by about a tablespoon of water. I think about it every time I go out in the rain. I think about your show. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, the lesson is it's not worth the extra effort to run. No, it's totally right. not. One of the things that I found really interesting was that when we would go back, we never cared what the result was going to be. People are like, did you ever want to bust something or want to prove something and you didn't? And actually that never came about to us. We were very, I think, pure in a lack of bias over a certain result. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let me switch to science communication. You know, we're living through another crisis, which has always been there, but it's taken off in the last five years or so with people doubting scientific evidence and ignoring it. COVID accelerated it a lot. Political events happened at the same time that accelerated it. In a world of whataboutism, you can't advocate for science without people saying, oh, you're just saying that because of your politics. So it's tough. Right. You know, I write a lot about how to get more people on board with trusting science. And it seems to me you guys did a really good job with this. So I guess the first question I would have is, was there ever anybody who was an adult? I mean, I think with kids, it's easier. But was there anybody who's ever an adult who had made their mind up about a myth that you either busted or confirmed in a different direction from what they believed, whose mind you were able to change? Oh, whose mind we were able to change? Yeah. Yeah, I want to know if there's a climate denier who, if they watched a Mythbusters about climate change, would go, okay, yeah. I get it now. Yeah. First of all, that's a question I haven't had, uh, which is in and of itself after 20 years of talking about this show. Totally amazing. Second of all, I have so many examples of the former. I will open by giving you one of those. So one of the most vitriolic arguments we settled early on in the show was a myth called airplane on a conveyor belt. And as stated, the myth is if an airplane is attempting to take off on a runway, and the runway is, in fact, a conveyor belt running in the opposite direction to the plane, matching its speed, can the airplane take off? And the answer is always, always and forever the airplane can take off because the question has a, a bit of 
fakery involved in its phrasing. When the question says that the runway is a conveyor belt running in the reverse direction of the airplane, most people's minds immediately think that that plane isn't moving forward as it's trying to take off because the runway is matching its speed. But the airplane's medium is not the ground, it's the air. And the only reason it has wheels is to keep the propeller from hitting the ground. So while a car would remain stationary, a plane will always move forward no matter how fast that runway is operating in reverse. And we took a half mile of tarp on an actual runway, got an ultralight plane, put it on the tarp, ran a pickup truck in the opposite direction, and the pilot of that plane did not think his own plane was going to take off. And he was as surprised as anybody mm -hmm. when it did. We knew it would. And when that episode aired, we went and looked at the forums and the general response was still disagree. We didn't agree before with the results and we don't agree now, even though they've proved it. Like they must have gotten something wrong. Literally just, just like that. So people's recalcitrance from veering off of their own stance on something is incredibly rigid. Frankly, I think that one of the I laid some of the blame in late stage capitalism earlier in this interview, and I lay more of it here because as soon as you can question someone's integrity, as soon as you're wondering what the financial incentives are for the results they've been giving, if there are financial incentives, that's problematic and that needs to be addressed. And so to me, full transparency is the most important aspect of science. We only stand on the shoulders of giants because they tell us what they did. And when we put stuff behind paywalls, or we have crazy financial incentives for being the first or being the newest or coming up with something different, we end up with every result can be challenged for some reason or another. You know, the thing that I think we have a hard time getting across is that science is set up to be self-correcting, right? So mm -hmm. the easiest way to get a paper in science is not by saying, oh, here's this theory that everybody believes and I tested it again and it turns out it's right. That's usually not gonna be a science paper. What's a science paper is here's something everybody believed. And guess what? We have to change that now. You know, that'll get you on the cover usually. Yeah. yeah. And so that's kind of the thing that that corrects for this. But we have a very hard time getting that across to people. They don't trust that that's the case. No matter how many times I tell them, look, whatever contentious issue it is, if scientists all believe something and someone disproves it and sends me a paper, I'll publish it almost whatever it is, if it's credible. The most beautiful epiphany I had about science was looking at this beautiful 3D rendering of our current universe model and realizing it's not a model of the universe. It is simply an amalgam of all the current data we have to tell ourselves a story. And there could be these completely fundamental ways in which it is wrong, and we can still go and discover those things. But yeah, this is the biggest difficulty is when you come to a different result, it often means people think like, well, science got it wrong. And it's like, science is always getting it certain degrees of wrong. It's not like we get things right and then sometimes it's wrong. It's like we're getting just less and less wrong as we go. And do you have any advice on how we can get that across to people better? For me, the secret sauce is always to make it personal, is always to find that intersection with my emotionality about the things that I'm talking about that makes them interesting to tell stories about. I find the structure of science surpassingly beautiful. I find the structure of figuring out how wrong we are to be a great frame to approach the world. And that frame can easily be weaponized 
for nefarious purposes. My favorite science communicators in the world are Carl Sagan and Richard Feynman, both of whom radically personalized their science communication. They really made it emotional. That spoke to me as a young reader. You listen to Sagan read The Pale Blue Dot, and I don't think anyone listens to that and comes back questioning Sagan's integrity for finding the right answer. And I think that's I think that emotionality is one of the ways he earns our respect and our trust. You know, there's of course there's a temptation to go on TV and say, I've got the answer. But of mm -hmm. course, we never have the answer. All we have is the answer that we have right now. And it's it's very hard for people to go on TV and say, here's what we know right now, but I might have to change it. And the journalists don't like that because they want things that are crisp. So how do we get through totally. that? Oh, man, I remember reading this thing about Oppenheimer, that when he was running the Manhattan Project, he was so cognizant of his power in his position that if he expressed an opinion, it would be assumed to be correct, that he said very little because he understood <laughs> how damaging he could be if he was wrong, because people would just take it as a as fact. Sorry, what was your original question? Well, my, I write a lot about how we've somehow got to get this across to people because we'll never get all 4 million or whatever it is, scientists to be communicators like Dick Feynman or Carl Sagan or Adam Savage. And so the only solution is to do a better job of telling people how science actually works. I am always suspicious of statements like, this is the best career. This is the most pure art form. None of that is true. There is no best career. There's no best job. Everyone finds their own way. But as I have traveled around the world in the last 20 years, meeting and talking to scientists, talking to them about their work, getting to experience them on a level that I never imagined, what I've come to see is that I don't think I have met a working scientist that didn't love their job, that didn't love the process of their job and was deeply connected to both the granular work of their day-to-day -day and how it fit into the big picture. And when you spend a lot of time around people whose joy comes from gathering that data and interpreting it and processing it and working with others, it's very infectious. I feel like there is still a story to be told that covers that joy. That's a story that I think is continually worth telling. You know, you're right. Replicating other people's results isn't sexy, but it is deeply beautiful and joyful. And I find that those are the stories that I want to continue telling. So those are the stories that I seek out, that that joy at discovery that exists in every working scientist. This has been awesome. So one last fun question. If there's one myth you could have tested that you didn't do, what would it be? Oh, I've got it. It's actually one I had to give up in the last season. I had this beautiful little 15-minute story, and we had a tanker car implosion went so cattywampus that we ended up with like 20 minutes of extra material. And as a producer, I had to give up one of my stories. And this story was a Native American hunting myth. And this myth is that if you wanted to hunt ducks, Native Americans had a technique where they would go to a pond where ducks congregated and float pumpkins on the pond for a few weeks. And the ducks would get familiar with pumpkins floating around. 
And then the hunter, when he wanted to eat duck, would put a pumpkin on his head and cut two eye holes out of it and swim out to the ducks. And they would ignore him because he was a pumpkin. I talked to a friend of mine who's a hunter who said, oh, it totally works. He said he's done it with grass. And like he said, you can go up to a duck and pull it underwater and the one next to it won't even notice. Now, we weren't going to do that on the show, but I did go far enough to actually build a pumpkin camera platform that I could steer through the water so that we could film this. And we had a duck pond to shoot on and everything. It's one I've always wanted to test. But sadly, when our episode for Tanker Implosion went too long, I had to give it up. So if we were going to do another episode, that would be the first one I would do. Then I have this whole other one in my head, actually, about stirring. Because when I go to a coffee shop and they give me a cup of coffee and I put sugar in it and they give me one of those tiny little straws that's like a millimeter in diameter, I think this isn't stirring. (laughs) This is barely more than Brownian motion. And so then I grab like five of those sticks and I have this question in my head. What do we consider the threshold of stirring? And you take wooden sticks, you take spoons, take a bunch of different objects, and you actually work with sugar in liquids to come up with what you consider the threshold for stirring. Because I don't think that tiny stick is actually stirring. Oh, and then there's this other one last thing that I was interested in about stirring sugar into my coffee is I notice every morning as I stir sugar into my coffee that the sugar, of course, thickens the water as it dissolves into it. And I can hear the tone of my spoon hitting the cup getting lower as the resonant frequency of the water changes. And I've been always fascinated by that relationship as well. Yeah, I think. Those are cool experiments and worth doing in a Gen Chem class also. So if you ever do those, let me know. Um, I will. Well, Adam, thank you for everything you've done for so many people. And I guess especially giving me a son who's a scientist just like his old man. So I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was so much fun. That was Mythbusters Adam Savage and Editor-in-Chief Holden Thorpe talking about science communication. You can find a link to the editorial that Holden wrote based on this conversation at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Rox Middleton about how waxy surfaces make blueberries blue. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Here's a puzzle. Blueberries are blue, but when you squeeze them, the liquid that comes out is a pinky red color. You're not getting blue dye, blue juice, blue pigment out of a blueberry. In fact, blue pigments are incredibly rare in nature. 
And recently, in Science Advances, Rox Middleton and colleagues solved this blueberry puzzle, the puzzle of the missing blue in blueberries, by looking to the waxy coating on the surface of the fruit and finding some unexpected properties. Hi, Rox. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. One of our longstanding contributing correspondents, Kai Kupferschmidt, he wrote a whole book on the color blue and why it's so hard to come by in nature and why chemists struggle so much to make it in the lab. But I actually never made this connection after so many conversations with him from blueberries being blue to actually they don't have a blue pigment in there. They're not a good source for blue. Why were you looking at blueberries and their blueness? What were you looking for in particular when you started this work? Yeah, it was really a kind of similar realization for me. I spent my whole PhD looking at different blue fruits because I'd been interested already in the fruits which look blue, but then, yeah, they don't have any blue pigment in them. And yeah, also a big fan of Kai's work and the the stuff he's put together. But, you know, every time I would talk about blue fruits to people, they'd be like, oh, yeah, blue fruits like blueberries. And I have to be like, no, 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 it's not. (laughs) But then I just suddenly, it just suddenly occurred to me like, wait, how are blueberries blue? Because yeah, like you say, (laughs) a blueberry smoothie, not blue. (laughs) It's so funny. So there's no blue in the berry or a lot of other blue appearing fruits. But as I mentioned up top, there's a wax on the surface that appears to be doing some of this work to make the berry blue. So what happens when you take off the wax? What does a blueberry look like when it doesn't have its waxy coating? Yeah, so it just looks sort of dark underneath, like blackish and I think it is funny when you see them in shops and they all look kind of battered. And some people think that bloom's not good for it. I've had people say, that's a fungus, isn't it? I'm like, no, (laughs) that's definitely a good thing. In fact, like the more wax you have on a blueberry, the less it's been messed with, right? The less it's been touched. And because it just comes off every time it gets touched. And actually, if you look at sort of blueberry harvesting machines, they have an adaptation from raspberry machines to reduce touching, to sort of stop the bloom coming off. That's so interesting. So what is the wax doing on the blueberry? What is it doing to make it seem more blue than if you take it all off and the the fruit kind of looks like really, really dark, almost black? So the wax itself is also not pigmented and you can dissolve it and it's not blue. It's transparent right up until deep UV, but it has tiny nanostructures inside the wax. And it's the interaction of light with those structures, which are sort of sub wavelength which means that it scatters light and it scatters more blue light than it does colored light and more UV light than it does blue light. And that's what makes it seem blue or UV blue to birds. So we should probably talk about this thing called structural color that you're describing here and how it's different than pigments. So can you talk a little bit about what a pigment does with light and what a structural color does with light? Sure. Pigments have molecules in them which literally absorb light and then re-emit it. So they have a transition that can happen which means that a specific wavelength will excite the transition and then it will de-excite and that will be the color that gets scattered from the pigment. Whereas with structural color, it tends to happen in either sort of transparent materials or materials which don't have a specific wavelength that they do that. Mm -hmm. So structural color doesn't absorb light certain wavelengths and reflect certain wavelengths. Instead, it, it actually shapes the light so that only certain colors come to you. Exactly. It doesn't do any absorbing the light just passes through. But because light is a wave, it interacts with the different surfaces that you get in the structure. So it might be the front and the back of a very thin film, or it could be a periodic structure, which is often where we see structural color. And in this case, it's a really, really random, very, very small structures. You looked at more than blueberries. You looked at a bunch of different blue fruits. 
Do they all have the same nanostructures in their waxy coatings that were guiding light to make it appear blue? They all have structures, but that was what surprised me because I was really unfamiliar with waxy surfaces. And so I kind of expected that they would be kind of similar. And in fact, there's loads of different shapes they have. So some are rods and some are rings, like flakes. They have common features, so they may be on the same length scale. And actually the spectra, the color that they reflect are really similar. And that's really important if you're interested in attracting, I guess, birds or other animals that are going to disperse the seeds for you. So what do they look like to (laughs) not human eyes? Can we say that this is a blue for a bird? Yeah, I think we can. Although we would say it's UV blue for those birds which see in UV. So there's a whole bunch of birds which see in UV. And I think it's important, but it's not just UV, it's UV blue because the immature fruits at the beginning, they're UV green when they're immature and the underlying pigments haven't changed. So this kind of goes to another conundrum, I guess, that idea that all these fruit-loving birds like blue things, but there's just not a lot of blue out there in nature, but maybe they're seeing the UV blue or there's all these other ways that fruits are communicating blueness to them besides pigment. Exactly. I was just suddenly like, oh my goodness, there are so many blue fruits and we just sort of ignore it and maybe think, oh, that's just a side effect. Like the plum is fundamentally like a dark color. It just happens to look blue. (laughs) No, they're really blue. (laughs) Is it important that the fruit is very dark colored underneath the wax in order to get this blue appearance? Yeah, that's really important because the cool thing about this way of coloring things is that it's non-absorptive which means that it it is semi-transparent. And so whatever you have underneath, you see that through. So if you have a really bright pigment, then you see that pigment plus the color that's reflected from the surface. But if it's bright green, then it will look bright green. So the way it works is there's a super dark pigment underneath, and that allows you to see just how blue that structure is on top. When I think of structural color, often I think of, I guess, more like the proteins and butterfly scales or bird feathers that are interacting with light. Is it a lot different that a wax is doing this? The mechanism is different because it doesn't have this periodicity. So it doesn't have, like in a butterfly, you get those amazing lattice works. And here, there's a lot of randomness. Equally, what's really nice about the wax is it is actually crystallized into these tiny shapes. And so the shapes that you get are really, really stereotyped. The shapes aren't random. It's just how they're arranged that's random. Oh, interesting. So when you reconstitute the wax in the lab, as you said, you take it off, you put it in solution, doesn't look like a blue solution. It doesn't look, it's just clear. But then when you let it crystallize in the lab, does it look blue then? Yeah, I got all of it in in solution, sort of dipping loads and loads of fruits to get the wax off. And then it was clear. And then once we'd evaporated all of that chloroform, which is how I got it, it went white. So there was a white powder. And that was when I thought, okay, like if we're going to, recrystallize this, it's got to be a bit more controlled. And then as we did this controlled recrystallization, the surface went blue. Mm, So cool. That was a great day. (laughs) (laughs) So if you can do this in the lab, then you can make things blue with wax. Like this is an application for the waxy surface. I don't know. Could you use it for artificial coloration? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. It kind of seems that way. It seems pretty straightforward to make it. And then It's a nice blue. Obviously, we already have blue colorants, but most of them depend on a pigment. So a stain and 
It means getting hold of that molecule, whatever it is. So I kind of like this as an alternative. Yeah. Oh, we should talk about the lotus leaf too. I think that was a really interesting parallel. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So people know loads about wax coating. I didn't before I started looking at this stuff. But it was very exciting to come across the fact that people already knew there were all of these different structures and like waxy coatings are extremely multifunctional and they coat all of the surfaces of all of the land plants that are above ground. Not quite, but more or less. And one of the things that people were really interested in before is the fact that they are super hydrophobic, these structures. Like the lotus leaf, that's what that's kind of famous for, is that you put a drop of water on it and it just rolls off. And that means if that surface gets dusty, then spraying water on it, the dust just comes off with the water too. So they're self-cleaning. And that's because of nanostructures on the surface of the wax? Yeah, exactly. And it's these exact same structures, actually. That's where you kind of think, okay, so this could be just a side effect of being super hydrophobic, right? But it's kind of nice seeing this in such an important signaling organ of a plant, which is a fruit, that it definitely has a visual role too here. Do you think that this kind of structural color using a wax nanostructure, do you think it's going to be able to produce other kinds of colors or is blue going to be its deal? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it going to be able to structure light in other parts of the spectrum? In this particular way, like with this exact mechanism, it's blue and it's UV. It could be different shades of blue. It could be different shades of UV, but it's fundamentally that. Yeah. So it won't be doing other colors. All right. What do you want to do next? Are you going to look more into structural color in fruit? Are you going to look more into the color blue? What's next on the agenda for you? I'm still really interested in all blue things. I think there's still some kind of cool things to be found there. But I'm really excited about the different ways that light interacts with different waxy structures and also excited about wax as an engineering material because it has so much potential. Like it makes all of these different shapes and just really seems to be sort of underused. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Can we have a blue candle? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I suppose there's also like looking at all of the applications for this blue colorant and how we might be able to sort of make it in a better way so that it can be put on things. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rox. Thanks so much for having me. Rox Middleton is a postdoctoral fellow at Dresden University of Technology and an honorary research associate at University of Bristol. You can find a link to the Science Advances paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by Cincinnati Children's. Custom Publishing Director Erica Berg chats with researcher Jim Wells about organoid therapies for digestive diseases. The views of the custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our listeners and welcome to this sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by Cincinnati Children's. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Today, I am delighted to welcome Dr. Jim Wells, Chief Scientific Officer of the Center for Stem Cell and Organoid Medicine at Cincinnati Children's. We'll be having a conversation about how metabolic and gastrointestinal organs develop and what this might mean for the treatment of diabetes and digestive diseases. Thank you so much for joining, Jim. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. 
First off, I wanted to start with a question about the Center for Stem Cell and Organoid Medicine, shortened as CUSTOM. It's one of the first centers in the world focusing on using human organoids in biomedical research. How did this happen in Cincinnati? So a few decades ago, we actually started to build the technology here to use human stem cells and to coax them to become organoids in a wide variety of different organ systems. So it was really an organic growth from the investment in basic science that Cincinnati Children's has made in these sort of foundational discoveries on how organs form. Mm. And how did you first get interested in your field, which is the study of gastrointestinal and endocrine organs, which includes the intestines, the pancreas, probably lots of other organs? So I, I trained as a postdoc in a lab that was studying pancreas development. And uh, I trained with lots of great people. And, and there's a, a wide variety of scientists who study that particular organ because it's of its importance with regards to diabetes. But I noticed that we knew very little about uh, the adjacent organs and how they form. So the gastrointestinal tract, after having arrived at Cincinnati, no, uh, realized that there were many diseases impacting these other organs that really don't get as much attention as the pancreas. So I made a, a pivot to study the gastrointestinal tract and diseases affecting those patients. Again, because there really wasn't as much foundational information on how those organs form, how they don't form normally sometimes, and, and the diseases that, that impact them. So I, I was hoping to make a bigger impact in a field that was underpopulated. So what have you learned about how these organs develop? Well, over the years, my lab and many labs around the world have used model organisms to study how these organs develop. So the organs of the GI tract, esophagus, stomach, pancreas, liver, etc. And through these studies in model organisms, they've identified the fundamental processes by which first the embryo decides which organs will form where, how to assemble those organs, and then lastly, how to make them functional. And this is all over time during the assembly and formation of these developing organs. And decades of research really have gone into understanding these fundamental processes of what we call organogenesis. Now we're in a position and we are actively translating that information that we gleaned from studies in model organisms to the application of directing the differentiation of pluripotent stem cells into organoids that are facsimiles, if you will, of these embryonic organs. You had a study published recently where you gave organoids an immune system. Can you share why an organoid would need an immune system and, and what you learned from this research? Sure. So you might imagine there's not a disease that impacts any person on earth that probably doesn't involve the immune system. So, and all of our organs have immune cells and, and they're involved in normal health of the organ, but also they get co-opted in the context of disease. So if you have an organoid and you want to study a disease process, it makes good sense to incorporate immune cells into that organoid so you can better replicate both the normal and the disease process. So take, for example, inflammatory bowel disease. You can't model inflammatory bowel disease without inflammatory cells, the immune cells. So that's why we thought that that was an important component to incorporate or engineer into our organoid systems. 
Thank you. So switching gears a little bit to start talking more about the the treatment aspect, I know that Cincinnati Children's very collaborative place. Could you discuss the role of your collaborations with surgeons, gastroenterologists, and endocrinologists, and how they're impacting your research into treatments? If you have uh, an hour and a half, I can tell you all the great interactions <laughs> we have, because it really is rich and deep and really rewarding, the interactions with the clinicians and the scientists. So in one example, we in, were interacting with both gastroenterologists and endocrinologists working on a patient who came into our clinic with a uh, congenital malformation affecting uh, a number of organ systems. And what we did actually was we decided to model the disease, uh, the, the congenital malformations affecting that patient to, to study them using organoids in the lab. So we actually studied a wide variety of different organoids that were all derived from that patient. So pancreas and stomach and intestine, and we found new pathologies in our organoids that were not diagnosed yet in the patient. So we went back to the, the, the gastro and, and endocrinologists and said, we think there are other problems that maybe your patient's suffering from. You might go back and look. And they did. Uh, they got biopsies from the patient and in fact confirmed what our organoid diagnostics first discovered, that there were certain things that were complications that they didn't appreciate. And this allowed them to change the patient care plan based on our what we're now calling organoid diagnostics. That is bananas and incredible. Wow. So how do you envision the impact of your research on pediatric health care, you know, particularly in the treatment of diseases related to the gastrointestinal and metabolic organs you study? So I think the best example of that is one of our homegrown organoid technologies, as we already mentioned, is the uh, uh, growing intestinal organoids. And I was fortunate enough to have a collaboration with a pediatric surgeon, Mike Helmrath, who's one of the co-directors of Custom. And his goal, his primary goal is for us as a team to shift this research organoid platform into something that could be therapeutically transplantable. And the team has come together and gotten support from children's and philanthropy to try to transition our intestinal organoids from the lab into the patient. And we now have established an entirely new infrastructure here at Cincinnati Children's called the Custom Accelerator Program, which is a separate lab space that is designed to transition basic research discoveries to the clinic. So in this case, the goal is to start learning how to make intestinal organoids that are therapeutic quality, to scale them up, and eventually to transplant them into patients that have a, a really profoundly impactful forms of either IBD or other intestinal injury that we think we might be able to repair using intestinal organoids. And uh, Mike Helmrath, the, the pediatric surgeon, has tested some of these early preclinical therapeutic organoids in animal models, and they really do seem to restore integrity to the intestine following an injury. Wow. Um, and for some reason, I can imagine what a liver organoid might look like or a pancreas organoid, just sort of a bundle of cells, but an intestinal organoid, does it look like an intestine? Is it a tube? So we haven't made a tube. Well, we are working towards making a tube-shaped organoid, 
we are making some good progress on that. But I think therapeutically, rather than replacing an entire organ, the stem cell derivatives that, that our lab and, and labs around the world are using are, are using more tissue therapeutics on the smaller scale. So for example, envision, you know, the end of summer, you look out in your front lawn is got all these holes in it. Inflammatory bowel disease is a lot like like that. There are holes basically that have worn away in the lining of the intestine. The intestine otherwise is structurally intact, but there are all these the damaging holes that have been worn away due to this disease that we're now hoping we can more or less reseed the lawn, if, if you will, mm. by analogy, to fill up the holes, restore the integrity of the organ. Because as you might imagine, keeping the bacteria inside and not in your you know, leaking out into your body is a pretty important job. Once you lose integrity of your intestine, you start to get uh, inflammation and infections and whatnot. So just restoring normal intestinal integrity by reseeding the lawn with organoids, we think might be a first therapeutic avenue. In the future, yeah, we'd love to be able to grow a whole, in, whole intestine, and, and we are working on it, but that's definitely further down the roads. Jim, Thank you so much for having this chat with me today. It was enlightening. I'm really incredibly excited about what's down the line with these organoid therapies. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and, and a great opportunity to, to talk about the research and the implications and, and where I hope it's going to go in the future. And you can learn more about Jim's work at CincinnatiChildrens.org. Our thanks to Cincinnati Children's for making this conversation possible. And a big thanks to you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.